0: Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Wednesday, July 22nd. What's it a good day to do? It's a good day to subscribe to The Local, give it a five-star review, share it with a couple friends. This experiment has been fun to do. We want to grow the audience to make it a sustainable thing. So the habit that some of you are getting into, more people can get into, and we can keep this thing going. So please do share, and please do give it five stars. Today, back in the day, July 22, 1974, Wayne Morse died. His admirers called him the Tiger of the Senate. He was the U.S. Senator from Oregon from 1945 to 1969. Wayne Morse cast one of the two votes against the 1964 Tonkin Gulf Resolution, which gave congressional approval to America's enlarged military involvement in Vietnam. An Oregon political legend, started out as a Republican. The first office he ever ran for was the United States Senate. He had been dean at the U of O Law School. During the 1952 presidential campaign, Morse broke ranks with Republican leaders over the party's platform and Dwight Eisenhower's choice of Richard Nixon as his vice presidential running mate. Wayne Morse became an independent. While an independent, he arrived at the opening session of the 83rd Congress in January of 1953 with a folding chair and a comment. Since I haven't been given any seat in the new Senate, I decided to bring my own. Against this backdrop a few months later, April 24, 1953, he began a filibuster against Tideland's oil legislation. When he finished, after 22 hours and 26 minutes, he had broken the 18-hour record set in 1908 by his mentor, Robert La Follette. The record was later broken twice. In 1955, Morse formally changed his party allegiance, becoming a Democrat and giving Senate Democrats the one-vote margin that returned them to the majority. Lyndon Johnson rewarded him with a pick of committee assignments. He continued to speak out against the Vietnam War in the following years, and he lost his 1968 bid for re-election to Bob Packwood, who criticized his strong opposition to the war. History, of course, has viewed his 1968 opinion differently than the 1968 electorate. In the small world department, he was friends with my grandfather and a mentor to my dad, who once went and worked on his ranch. I never met the man, but I'm among the thousands of Oregonians who admire him. Rest in peace, Wayne Morse. Today, we'll start with the quick six. Barb Seaman is back with a focus on domestic violence during COVID-19. Barb brings us an update from Detective Tanya Wolstein of the Vancouver Police Department and an interview with Norm Turrell. He's the chair of the committee trying to pass Initiative 57. That's the redistricting commission. And he came on to advocate for passing of Initiative 57. We will invite later an opponent as well. First up... It's time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. The coalition of Oregonians, including two state representatives, have filed a lawsuit against the federal government. The lawsuit, filed in response to the deployment of federal officers in Portland, accuses the government of violating the 10th Amendment. The 10th Amendment sets forth the separation of powers between federal and state governments. Plaintiffs include Representatives Karin Power and Janelle Bynum, as well as the Western State Center, the First Unitarian Church of Portland, ACLU attorney Sarah Eddy. Together, they're requesting a permanent restraining order against the Department of Homeland Security. That restraining order would limit federal officers to the defense of federal property and require a warrant or probable cause for any future arrests. The First Unitarian Church located downtown also claimed that federal officers have infringed on their First Amendment rights by making the area too dangerous for worship. This lawsuit falls on the heels of another suit brought by Oregon Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum. That lawsuit has claimed many of the same violations. Your daily dose of data, 299 new COVID cases on Tuesday in Oregon, seven more deaths. That's one of the biggest days of deaths we've had, tragically. That gets our case count to over 15,000 with 269 related deaths. Multnomah and Washington counties have the bulk of the new cases, with Umatilla County reporting 59 new cases yesterday, 23 of those as a result of an outbreak at a Walmart distribution center. Meanwhile, Oregon has started to relax some restrictions on visitations to long-term care facilities. Families can now make outdoor visits with their loved ones as long as distancing and face masks are used. Group sizes will be limited. Families have to go through health screenings. The agency hopes to alleviate the burden on families as the shutdown continues. In other somewhat good news, the Oregon Health Authority has added a testing site locator to their website that's available in both English and Spanish. That interactive map will hopefully help people find the testing site nearest them, but testing kits remain in limited supply. OHA still maintains that citizens should contact a healthcare professional to determine whether a test is needed before heading to a testing site. According to Oregon Health Authority's weekly testing summary, The state had recently had a weekly test capacity of 41,000. They warned their supply chains may be disrupted in the coming weeks as states around the country struggle with surges of the coronavirus. Turnaround times have gotten longer. Some results are taking up to two weeks after collection. My brother, by the way, at Kaiser, got his test turned around in a day. One data point I know, but it's a data point. According to the latest available data, Washington has 47,743 confirmed cases, 1,453 known deaths, and 5,102 people have been hospitalized. Since reopening, people aren't eating out as often, not nearly as often. After a steady uptick in diners following the limited reopening of many restaurants in May, that increase has stalled. Over the past month, restaurants have seen little movement of the number of diners walking through their doors. In fact, OpenTable reports that dine-in business is down by over 60 percent compared to June of last year. Online reservations are looking even worse, 80 percent lower than this time last year. That's reservations, by the way, not just orders. Following this trend, restaurant employment has stalled after a brief recovery in May and June. Overall, restaurant employment has shrunk by about one-third compared to June of 2019. The surge in coronavirus cases across the country is the likeliest culprit for the stalled recovery. To be clear, we can't recover the economy until we control the coronavirus. It ain't the other way around. According to Eater PDX, over 40 area restaurants, bars and cafes have permanently closed during the pandemic in our town. Last year, Oregon House Representative Janelle Bynum introduced a bill that would allow victims of false or racist 911 calls to sue Now the bill might be a model beyond our borders. That bill passed the Senate, was signed by the governor, went into effect this year. Only one legislator, Republican State Senator Alan Olson, voted no on the bill. Now, in the midst of national protests for racial justice, similar bills are gaining traction across the country. Lawmakers in New York, Michigan, and Wisconsin have embraced similar measures, allowing victims of racist 911 calls to sue. There's no truth to any rumor that the legislation is called the Karen Act. These measures, by the way, are partially motivated by the experiences of black lawmakers on the campaign trail who have more than once reported false 911 claims while knocking on doors trying to get votes. False 911 calls can cause trauma, can even be life threatening, especially for BIPOC communities. Republican opposition to the measures continue. Earlier this year, a bill modeled on Representative Biden's proposal was blocked by Republicans in Wisconsin. They argue that penalties on certain 911 calls could make people hesitate before calling 911. By the way, another potential model lawmaking news, Joan Hardesty is working on an initiative to give real teeth to the citizen review of police. If it gets referred and voted yes by the people of Portland, it too could serve as a national example. Pioneer Pacific College will close for good at the end of this month. All three campuses of the for profit college will be ceasing operations. July 31st. All three campuses of the for-profit college will close on July 31st. That includes the Oregon Culinary Institute here in Portland. They cited the economic fallout of COVID-19, but they do join a list of other private colleges that closed in the years prior to the pandemic. 131 workers will be laid off. For right now, public universities are still hanging on, though many plan to adjust their payrolls in anticipation of low enrollment. And a ripple of hope. A local band has found a way to adapt to the pandemic and bring music to listeners in surprising ways. Musician John Dreschler and friends are touring Oregon under the name Tune Tours, providing impromptu music and outdoor spaces often unannounced. Previous venues include Washington Park, the Tillamook Air Museum, and the convolution of the Columbia and Willamette Rivers. Tune Tours is another example of the improvisation many have had to come to know during the pandemic. Shout out to the Pavement Show last week, by the way, by Risk Reward and others. What a neat show that was. The Tune Tour's performances feature whatever instruments and musicians they can gather, including an old piano on the back of a pickup truck. And they make their performances available on YouTube for those who prefer to stay at home. And that is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown.
1: X-Ray.
2: One of the results of the COVID shutdown has been an increase in domestic violence. Now, after a few months of living under the stay-at-home order, police departments are gathering data to learn just how much... Detective Tanya Wolstein of the Vancouver Police Department explains.
1: I'm Barb Seaman for KXRW Vancouver. The COVID pandemic has changed the way people interact with the world and each other. That's also true within the privacy of their own homes. There's been a change in the reporting of domestic violence crimes since Washington State Governor Jay Inslee announced the shelter-in-place order on March 23rd.
3: Um, so domestic violence is, is definitely on the rise, especially our misdemeanor assaults.
1: Detective Tanya Wolstein has worked in the Vancouver Police Department's domestic violence unit for the last year and a half. We spoke recently about the effects of the shutdown.
3: So I think that people that normally probably wouldn't have these um fights or situations escalate into physical violence, um, the additional stress of unemployment, of being forced to stay at home, of, you know, not having the outlets that they normally have, whether that may be working out or going out with friends or doing whatever, has definitely increased it. So in the beginning, we saw a much larger increase, about 39 percent uh, right now we are still up 11%. This is over the five year average, uh, of, of crimes. And again, this is just for Vancouver police department. I can't speak to what the County or any of the surrounding agencies are seeing. Uh, but I do know that there is an increase in, um, Portland's domestic violence. And I know that right now, um, for the last about 10 weeks is our, well, about last 14 weeks actually now, uh, we're looking at about an 11 percent overall increase, with the largest percentage of that coming from these misdemeanor assaults.
1: Detective Wolstein says the current situation means some incidents are going unreported.
3: The the scary thing, um, which is somewhat associated, is that we are seeing a decrease in assaults um, on children because they're not in school, they're not out seeing other people, and there are no mandatory reporters that are reporting. Um, so that those are two very concerning factors with COVID, and and they're they're difficult to solve. We're seeing domestic violence go up, so we know that we're gonna see an association with um, child abuse. Unfortunately, child abuse typically is gonna be reported by a third party. Um, so we're seeing those reports go down, which is concerning. Um, and we're seeing things that I believe would not normally escalate into physical violence between intimate partners escalate into intimate violence or into intimate partner violence.
1: Because the stresses of the situation in general?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, I think right now there's there's all kinds of social movement going on. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, I think it's been made clear that there are trust issues with law enforcement. Um, and I would hope that Vancouver has, has done as much as possible to, to be transparent. I know that we're continuing to do that, and we're working with, um, you know, task forces and trying to right any wrongs, or do better, or reach out. But. Um, there's that whole movement and then there's the COVID crisis which is an unemployment crisis a financial crisis there's so many factors that go on and then you have just the fact that if i'm an abusive person and i am now stuck in a home and not really able to leave and go do something else go to work go to the gym go to wherever i'm going to go to um those tensions will ultimately result in more violence.
1: What resources would you recommend people check into if they are uh, motivated to try to get help?
3: Um, There are several resources in the community. I think your kind of one-stop shop right now um, is the YWCA. They can do a checklist with you to see what your needs are and what resources might match and then assist you with that. They also are, run our um, Safe Choice program, which is emergency housing for domestic violence victims. They can help with things like um, rent. They can help with getting longer-term housing. They can help with sexual assaults. Um, there are many things that they do, and they provide advocacy, counseling services, um, many other
1: things. The YWCA Clark County can be reached by calling 360-695-0501. The Vancouver Police Department can also connect victims to resources they may need. The number for the Domestic Violence Unit is 360-487-8536. For KXRW Vancouver and X-Ray FM, I'm Barb Seaman.
2: The November ballot is not ready to print. Yet. Norman Turrell is here to give an update on the redistricting measure IP57. In times of social distance and self-quarantine, gathering enough signatures for a petition is harder than ever. One major proposal still working to earn its place on the 2020 ballot is IP57, an initiative aimed at reforming how Oregon draws its districts. On the line with us today is Norman Turrell, chair of the People Not Politicians Action Committee and a board member of the League of Women Voters of Oregon. Norman, welcome to the show. Hi, Emily. How are you doing this morning?
4: Uh, I'm doing fine. It's a nice sunny uh, day here in Portland, and I just returned from the Oregon coast to a oh. nice relaxing weekend.
2: Oh, well, good, yeah. There's nothing like seeing nature in action to give a sense of uh, possibility and maybe even a little calm in these moments. So listeners who may be unfamiliar, what does IP57 aim to do?
4: Uh, well, it's an initiative to uh, amend the uh, Oregon Constitution to institute a 12 member independent redistricting commission, uh, which would draw all the boundaries for legislative and congressional districts for the next 10 years or so. Um, the way the redistricting is done now is by the legislature, and the legislature we uh, feel has a built in conflict of interest in the process and they've usually actually failed in trying to redistrict the state over the last hundred years they've failed every time but two and the first one was in nineteen eighty-one where the bill that uh, passed the legislature actually was challenged in court went to the oregon supreme court and the oregon supreme court ordered the secretary of state to correct that boundary the other time was in uh... twenty eleven when the legislature had an unusual uh... situation that we don't think will happen again uh... It, where the uh, Oregon house was evenly divided between republicans and democrats and the senators uh... decided to act in a bipartisan manner and so they appointed equal members of democrats or republicans to the joint committee that uh... did the redistricting plan and uh we think that was great they did as best they could under the circumstances but the results according to ballotpedia were properly characterized as a partial bipartisan gerrymander in which the two parties uh, uh traded safe districts and ballotpedia said that there was actually three or four districts fewer that were competitive in the process that uh, uh in the results that came out of that process so uh... we think we can do a better job than the legislature uh... i don't know that we can claim to have the best process uh... in the world because nobody knows what that might be but we think we can do it a whole lot better than the legislature does it so uh, that's the uh... the crux of what we're trying to accomplish
2: So in those two instances that you just gave, failure looks like the majority party uh, drawing a new district so that that majority party stays in power?
4: Yeah, the temptation uh, for any party that's in charge of the process is to gerrymander the state. Mm -hmm. And that usually means choosing their voters to fit into the districts the way they like them to be so that they get Mm reelected. And the tendency is to create safe districts that uh, are so biased towards one party that uh, that party is able to maintain their influence. And in the process, the voters lose because Mm -hmm. uh, the districts aren't competitive and the voters can't have any possibility of changing their representation. Mm
2: -hmm. So under the current system where the legislature is, is making these decisions, whose voices are most likely to go unheard?
4: well the uh, most likely people are the minority party mm-hmm. uh... after that probably minority communities uh, because the legislature will give lip service to listening to minority communities but in the uh... And it's the interests of the party and the getting reelected that uh, will dominate the process rather than uh... listening to any particular voices
2: so recently you received an extension on the deadline to submit enough signatures. How many more signatures do you need?
4: Um, that's a little indeterminate. Mm-hmm. The uh, Judge McShane in the Eugene Federal Court uh, allowed us to have fewer signatures, and he set the bar at uh, 58,000 and some signatures. Uh, and he also allowed uh, extra time until August 17th. Mm-hmm. Um, however, our opponents actually appealed the decision to the uh, Ninth Circuit Court, and it's a little indeterminate as to exactly what the Circuit Court might require or if they will change the uh, judge's decision at all. So we're doing as best we can to collect additional signatures at this time until our deadline of August 19th. Uh, the mail deadline, by the way, would be August 10th or, or so in order to get the mail to salem so that we can get them processed and to over to the secretary of state so um we're going to collect everything signature we can for the next uh, few weeks uh just to make sure that we have enough to um, mm-hmm. get above the bar that the judges set
2: so without the opportunity to be at events to be on the streets gathering signatures what are your strategies
4: well we don't want to bet anybody to endanger their health uh, to just get a few more signatures on our petition we're asking people to contact their uh, family friends and neighbors and get them to sign the petition uh they can download petitions from our website at uh, peoplenotpoliticiansoregon.com and uh get signatures after printing out the petitions uh be sure to sign the certification at the bottom of the petition uh every petition has to be signed at least twice one as a voter and one as a circulator and then uh mail it back to us uh, in Salem the um, one signature versions uh can be printed individually by voters and then sent back the 5 and 10 signature versions have to be printed double-sided with the ballot title and other information on the back side of the petition it can't be a separate sheet it has to be shown that it's uh, been presented to voters when they're signing the the, the, um, petition Mm. so there's a a lot of detail involved in this and it's a a rather complicated process and and certainly a, a complicated issue so uh... We're hoping everybody will at least help us get it on the ballot so that people can vote on on it in November.
2: How confident do you feel about making the deadline?
4: I'm fairly confident uh, since the judge ordered the reduction in the requirements. Mm -hmm. Uh, By the way, the the judge's decision was effectively that the initiative process is for the purpose of demonstrating sufficient uh, interest in the voters so that it can be voted on. In November, and that's effectively what he ruled. But he uh, ruled that uh, the campaign has demonstrated already the interest of the voters by collecting some 64,000 signatures that we turned in uh, to the Secretary of State. Uh, but he gave us the extra time and a lower uh, rate of signatures so that we could make sure that we do have that to demonstration of the voters' interest. Mm.
2: Now, IP57 has a number of organizations behind it. What groups have come out in opposition to the bill, and what are their main arguments?
4: Well, the supporters represent the whole spectrum of the uh, politics in Oregon. Uh, Our opposition would like to make this into a partisan issue, and we're maintaining that it's really a, a process issue that affects all parties equally. So it doesn't uh, affect just Democrats or just Republicans, uh, but our opposition represents the political establishment in Oregon, which are at this time uh, Democrats, and particularly our Oregon is the leader of that uh, effort to oppose us. They've tried to delay and keep us off the ballot in any way that they can, and uh, we're hopefully going to show them up by getting on the ballot in, in November. Um, uh, a process issue I compare to a double-edged sword that can cut both ways and uh, either party can use that sword to uh, meet its uh, aims if it needs to but uh, often the the, uh, process is (coughs) controlled by the other party and uh, they can wield it just as well as the uh, parties that are in power now and, in fact, in the history of oregon that has been the case in the nineteen eighty one uh case that i cited it was in fact the Republicans who were in charge of the the uh state process of redistricting and uh it was the Democrats who uh opposed that so uh um, we think this is a better way for the voters to be in charge of the redistricting process rather than the politicians who have a conflict of interest.
2: So this sets up a commission with uh, with citizens representing the state, four Democrats, four Republicans, and four either non-affiliated or other party. Is that, is that the correct? Um, yes,
4: that's correct. And, and right now there's no um, non-affiliated uh, representatives in the legislature and there's no minority parties in the legislature so those would be better represented in the process of the uh, independent commission Uh, furthermore we're not trying to set up a commission that's representative of anything Uh, in fact uh, we're trying to balance the political interests of the state so that they have to compromise and that the voters win in the process rather than the politicians
2: and what was the thinking behind doing the four Democrats, four Republicans, and four other folks, as opposed to doing it in a proportional way to represent the current um, current voter makeup in the state of Oregon?
4: Well, that's what I just explained, that we don't want it to be representative. We want it to balance the political interests of the mm-hmm. state uh, so that they have to compromise in fact one of the provisions of the initiative is that any map that is uh, uh, adopted by the commission has to have at least one uh commissioner vote in favor of it from each of the three groups mm-hmm. and that way they they are also forced to compromise
2: are there any other states that are that are redistrict that are setting up redistricting commissions similar to what this proposes
4: uh yeah uh, our proposal is actually uh modeled after what California voters passed by initiative over ten years ago uh, and their independent Commission by all accounts actually worked very well in redistricting the state and if anything uh, the voters have more control over their uh, elected officials than they ordered before uh, other states uh, in the 2018 election there was actually five states
2: States and which state has been doing it for the longest in that in that format?
4: I I don't know. I guess uh, Washington State to our north might be mm-hmm. one of the oldest because uh, they passed a constitutional amendment back in the nineteen eighties to set up a four member uh, uh, politician appointed commission is what I would call it because there's uh, one uh commissioner appointed by each of the four caucus uh leaders in the legislature and then they appoint a fifth person that does not have a vote to to balance the commission and, and to be the chair so that's probably one of the oldest if not the oldest
2: and norman how can our listeners best support your cause
4: by uh downloading petitions from our website People, not politicians. PeopleNotPoliticiansOregon.com and print it out, sign it uh, twice, and mail it back to us.
2: Excellent. Well, Norman, thank you so much for joining us this morning.
4: Well, thank you, Emily, for your attention to this uh, campaign. And uh, with everybody's help, we can get this on the ballot so people can vote on it.
2: Well, we look forward to checking in with you again soon on The Progress.
4: Okay. Good to have you, uh, your attention, and I'll talk to you again soon, perhaps.
2: Thank you, Norman. Have a good day. That's Norman Terrell, chair of the People, Not Politicians Action Committee and a board member of the League of Women Voters of Oregon.
0: Thanks to Barb, Detective Olstein, and Norman for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks again for subscribing and
1: giving a five-star review, and thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.